0: Uh, my name is Pastor Ryan Ivy. Uh, excited to be here with you this morning. I, I'm a staff here at Walk in something titled Church Planning Apprentice, and just what that means is that uh, I, I kind of cheated the system, and I get paid to learn from the greatest church ministry staff in the country. Um, and so, particularly Pastor Hayden and Pastor West have just poured into me and just show me I'm so much about church planning, but even more than that, what it's like to be a godly father, uh, to be a godly husband, and just to be devoted to Christ in your personal life. Just so grateful for those brothers. Um, and, and Heiden and Nina are here this morning, which we did not expect. Uh, due date was last Thursday, and so we are anticipating the arrival, arrival just any second now. Uh, baby. I, and so uh, I want just, to just take a, a minute. If you could just kind of reach your hands out to this awesome couple and we'll just, uh, just pray with me uh, for the Ratners and, and this family. Uh, Lord, we just love you. God, you are the author and sustainer of life. And that's glorious good news. And, and Lord, we just lift up this family to you. We're just so grateful for the Ratners and, and their impact on, on each and every one of us and, and the kingdom of God. Well, we're we're praying for for baby Hyden Jr., Lord, that he would just be safe, Lord, and healthy. God, we're we're praying for his his, uh, arrival to be soon, Lord. Uh, God, we just pray for for just the health of Nina. God, we're praying for for baby Hyden's salvation, God, that you would just draw him to yourself. Uh, God, that that you would even begin preparing that um, now, God, for what you're going to use him for one day. Well, we just are so grateful for this couple, this family. We just lift them up to you, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so we're in a series right now that we've entitled uh, Believe the Hype, Believe the Hype, Uh, and I'll be honest with you, um, that's not language I typically use. Um, I'm from Mobile, Alabama, the South, um, but... Uh, being around hiding, it's, it's something that's coming into my vocabulary now, uh, phrases like this. But what this means, if you're like me, um, believe the hype. Hype just means that there's a buzz around something. People are talking about it, uh, it's going around. And so uh, we've been in this series, and we started the very first week at Believe the Hype about the resurrection. Believe a hype about the resurrection because there's so much talk around the resurrection of Jesus. To kind of prove that point, uh, the the largest attendance Sunday of the year for almost every church in America is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. So there's a lot of hype, a lot of people talking about it, discussing it. And Paul even says um, that if Jesus didn't rise, if the resurrection didn't happen, then what we're doing today is futile. It doesn't matter. Because the resurrection is everything. Because that's where um, God, through Jesus, declared uh, his power and authority over death and sin and the grave. And so that's what we looked at the first week. And then we jumped into Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we're going to look at again this morning for two weeks. We looked at the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then we looked at um, how, how God's called us to be his witnesses and what the implications are for that. And if you haven't heard those sermons, if you weren't here, um, go listen to those online because they're important for you to, to just kind of a groundwork for even where we're going today. And then last week, um, we looked at the hype around motherhood, which is a vital message today. Whenever we live in a culture that's constantly trying to redefine what motherhood is and isn't and what it means to be a man and a woman, and uh, we got to look at the story of Lois and Eunice and how they poured into Timothy, this mom and grandmother. Poured into it and made it, Timothy, the man who, who became one of the greatest pastors in history. And it was through the faithful prayer and ministry of his mom and his grandmother. And so this week, um, we're, we're kind of continuing that series about Believe the Hype. in a sermon I've titled, Believe the Hype About the Kingdom. Believe the Hype About the Kingdom. And, and the, the reality is, I can see it on some of your faces, uh, that that falls a little flat on us. Right, we're not necessarily uh, the kingdom. That's not something we really talk about. I, don't, I really don't even know what you're talking about. Right, these other things, I, I'm with you, that there, there's hype around those. But the kingdom, right, we, we don't really talk about that. Um, and so first, I feel like what I have to do is convince you that there's actually hype around this subject. And so the, the, there's no better place to do that than, than with the scripture. And so the very first place I, I want to take us to is Luke chapter 4. And what's happening in, in this uh, chapter, Jesus is healing a ton of people. Um, and so when that happens, um, a huge crowd is around Jesus. And they're, they're wanting him to do some more stuff, more miracles. And they're wanting to hear what he's got to say. And so Jesus did what almost no pastor today would do. He, he leaves the crowd to go spend some alone time with the Father. And when he does that, this is where we pick up in the story. In verse 42, it says, And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. Now we can debate all day long why Jesus was sent to the earth. But if you want to hear it from his mouth, he said he was sent to preach the kingdom of God. Right? So, so I don't know about you, but that's something that we should tune into. That, that sounds like some hype around something. But, but it doesn't even stop there. Acts chapter 1, that's where you can kind of camp out in your Bible if you're following along with me. We're going to keep going back to Acts chapter 1. Um, but we're going to be looking at some different places. But what's just happened, but before we read this verse, is that Jesus has just been crucified. He was in a tomb for, for three days, and on the third day he rose from the grave. And he appears to his disciples. And this is what It says, says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus in his ministry with the disciples, he spoke about all kinds of things. He spoke about the law and he spoke about miracles and he spoke about heaven and hell and money and all these different things. And I can imagine that the disciples, I mean, they, they believed him probably like 65%. Right, I mean, because they're following them. They're probably pretty committed. But I imagine it wasn't until Jesus died like he said he was going to and then rose from the grave and now he's with them again, I imagine they're 100% bought in. Yeah. Right? They're fully focused at this point. It's like whatever you say, we're going to listen to it because um, you said you were going to die and raise it and you did it. No one else ever has. So we're committed. And so in the last 40 days when Jesus has the disciples of um, full attention, when he has their full focus, he could have talked about anything. He could have done anything. But he spent it speaking about the kingdom of God. And that's how um, Acts opens. Right? That's the beginning of Acts. Acts is uh, my favorite book in the Bible, and it's the story of the church in the New Testament. Um, how the church grew and expanded and, and infiltrated the world. And so I want to take you to the very end of Acts, Acts chapter 28, where now we pick up on a story uh, from the guy by the name of Paul. So in Acts 28, starting in verse 30, it says, Paul, uh, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now this is Paul, the greatest missionary to ever live. I mean, he planted churches um, all over, in, in his retirement, we'll call it. His last couple of years on earth, he could have relaxed. I mean, he could have spent that time talking about anything or doing whatever he wanted to. But for the last two years of his life, talking about to anybody who would listen, he talked about the kingdom of God. Now, if you're still not convinced that there's hype around the subject, I want to take you even a step further that this phrase, kingdom of God, This exact phrase is mentioned 66 times in the New Testament alone. 66 times. And another 31 times the phrase kingdom of heaven is mentioned. And it's only mentioned in the book of Matthew. Matthew was a devout Jew and he was writing to a Jewish audience. And so you might say those don't mean the same thing, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. But they actually do. Because something in the Jewish culture, they so revere the third commandment out of the the ten commandments, which is you should not take the Lord's name in vain that they just tried to refrain from even uh, writing the name of God. So if there was an opportunity where another word would suffice, they would use it. And so Matthew uses that word, um, kingdom of heaven, 31 times in his writings. And so we have 97 times that that the Bible mentions, it talks about, focuses on the kingdom of God. So I hope by now you're, you're convinced that there's hype around this subject maybe not in your life, but the Bible has really hyped up the kingdom. So what is it? So it's not meaningful to just understand that there's a lot of talk about it. Well, what is the talk? What's important about the kingdom? I was having a conversation with a friend of mine this past week, and I've been studying this, and I just wanted to see kind of where he was. And so I just asked, hey, when you hear the word kingdom, what comes to your mind? I didn't say like, according to scripture or just anything like that, just when you hear the word kingdom, what comes to your mind? And he said, "Uh, I don't know, like magic kingdom, I guess some Disney world comes to my mind first, or like Game of Thrones, I guess, not that I've ever seen it, but maybe that comes to my mind, or it's like, I don't know. And because of the, I imagine that that's common for many of us because we live in a, a democratic republic here in the United States, and, and it's hard for us to grasp what a kingdom is. Right, we see the Queen of England and kind of how that operates, but it's still pretty confusing for us. So I want to give us a definition for kingdom. And this definition is a realm associated with or regarded as being under the control of a particular person or thing. And that's how the dictionary defines kingdom, and that's how you see it used in Scripture. It's that a realm associated with or regarded as being under the control of a particular person or thing. So so that's a kingdom. And so when we're talking about the kingdom of God, I want to give you just kind of a definition. Because what's difficult is that nowhere in Scripture, as much as Jesus talks about the kingdom, he never says the kingdom of God is exactly this. Jesus often uses parables and um, stories and illustrations to explain the kingdom. But here's kind of the best definition I could come up with for the kingdom of God. And that's God's rule and reign on earth. God's rule and reign on earth. Now, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that. We're going to learn this morning. Um, what, what, this is something that, that scholars call um, a dichotomy of an already and not yet. And let me explain to you what I mean there. Um, when God created the earth, He created everything in it, um, He was the, the ruler and king over all of creation, it was His. But when sin came to the world, what what sin was is saying, hey, God, I don't recognize you as king anymore. I'm going to be king. That's what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. As creation began to to put themselves on the throne where they didn't belong. And so what happens is is, uh, many years later, Jesus comes to this earth, um, God's only son, who is God in human flesh. And he comes to this earth to reestablish the kingdom of God. And so Jesus inaugurates the kingdom here on earth and says, uh, this is the kingdom. However, the kingdom is useless. It doesn't matter um, if the king is overland if it doesn't have any citizens, if it doesn't have any subjects. And so even though the, the kingdom of God is established here on earth, we will not see the fullness of the kingdom. We'll not see um, it in all of its glory and goodness until Jesus comes again. So that's, that's this, this balance that we're dealing with, that the kingdom is already established, but it's not yet what it will be. Already and then not yet. So, that, so that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about um, citizens of the kingdom of God. Now that's a really long phrase for what we would call ourselves. We, we kind of shorten that down to just Christians. That's probably an easier phrase. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you're you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so now that we learned a little bit about the kingdom, how does that apply to us? Why does that matter? And our first point uh, this morning is that we are first, keyword first, citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, I, I can't say this enough because we live in a culture where we're our. Attention is so divided among so many things that, that we probably wouldn't put ourselves as first in anything. We're just, yeah, we're equally Christian and we're equally Republican. We're equally uh, um, a football player. We're equally, we're equally so many things. But however, in, in the kingdom of God, uh, God says you can only pledge your allegiance to him first, not anything else. Because what we do, we'll often say, yeah, I'm an American Christian, or uh, I'm a a white Christian, or uh, I'm a a libertarian Christian. We put these adjectives before Christian. And what Tony Evans says, whenever you put an adjective before Christian, you allow the adjective to modify the noun. So you're making Christian look more like whatever you put before it, instead of making your Christian life uh, affect everything else around you. That's why this is so important. Because uh, there's been so many times in our life that, that we've pledged our allegiance to something else in the kingdom of God that God's just come second or third or fourth or fifth. And God says, I won't have it. I won't, won't allow that to stand. I'll give you an example. For, for me in my life, uh, growing up, football is what I pledged my allegiance to. It, it's what came first in my life. So much so that, that I, I felt a, a call to ministry in my life early on. Um, and so I, I knew at the college level I wanted to study theology. I, I really believe that's where God wanted me. And so what I was telling God, uh, man, I really believe this is what you want me to do, and this is what I'm willing to do as long as I still get to play football. God, I will go to whatever school you want me to go to as long as they got a team so I could play. And in that season, what God, I'm just through some wrestling. What God showed me is that, hey, I'm not going to be second. I'm not going to be a tag on. I'm not going to allow you to just kind of pursue the things of this world and just bring me along. I'm either first or I'm nothing. And so it was through that, that season of wrestling, I said, all right, God, I, I'm going to be serious. You're first. And I ended up going to a school that didn't even have a team. But what is it for you? What is it for you that that is so easy to pledge your allegiance to, but before something else? Maybe it's even your family, right? There's so many good things that we pledge our allegiance to over Jesus. But as citizens of the kingdom, um, that has to come first. That comes first show you a little bit where we're getting this, this language from. Citizens, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Some translations even say of the kingdom of God. All right, so we're no longer strangers and aliens in God's kingdom, but we're now citizens. And we're first citizens before anything else. Russell Moore, he says it this way. He says, the kingdom of God ought to reshape our vision and what matters and who matters. Yeah. Right? We spend too much time allowing culture and uh, allowing a family and allowing so many other things to shape what matters and who matters instead of allowing the kingdom of God to reshape what matters. Right. But whenever the, we're first citizens before anything else, uh, the kingdom then informs every area of our life. And so, so now what, what I want us to, to look at is that every kingdom that's ever existed, I think about the, the, the Roman Empire, every kingdom that's ever existed has had a plan and a strategy on how they were going to expand that kingdom. And almost always it was going to be through force. right? They, they was going to grow a really big army, and then they was going to go to a, a smaller country or region or land and say, hey, I'm bigger than you. We're going to take you over. They're like, no, all right, well, look at our army. We're doing it. And so uh, God's kingdom is similar. God has a plan and a strategy on how he's going to expand the kingdom. It's just not through an army. Our second point this morning is that, that we are God's plan to expand the kingdom. We are God's plan to expand the kingdom. The church. The church is God's plan to expand the kingdom. Kevin DeYoung, he says it this way. He says, the goal of a church is not to have bigger buildings or a bigger budget, but to see the kingdom of God increase and disciples multiply. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Amen. We're one class, we all clap. There we go. So, so I, I want us to hear that. The implication of that is if, if we're first citizens of the kingdom, if we're first citizens of the kingdom of God before anything else, and then if the goal of the kingdom is to expand it, then that means our goal is to expand the kingdom before anything else. Right, before our our goal is to get the promotion at work, before our goal is uh, for our kids to graduate, before anything else, our our first goal in our life is to expand the kingdom of God. And what's so cool is is Jesus in his last words here on earth, he gives us his strategy on how that's going to happen. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the very first half of this verse, that, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, um, we went into both of those phrases in depth. We took two weeks on that half a sentence. And so um, if if you missed those, go back and listen to those online. Pastor Hyden did an incredible job um, digging into those. But for for time's sake, we're going to spend our time on the second half of this verse. God's strategy to to expand the kingdom. And so what I want us to do, before we go any further, I I want us to, to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Because one thing that, that often happens is, is that we, are in our Western culture, 2,000 years after um, Jesus was here, um, we, we think about um, that this was written specifically to us. And, and there's danger in that because um, we hear it differently than the hearers would have heard it in that day. And so I want to take us through how, how the disciples and how the people I'm hearing this would have heard it in that day. And I want us to put, put ourselves in their shoes and see how that translates today. Because I remember kind of my first time seeing this, it just sounded like locations, right? The, the gospel needs to go to specific places. But it, I, I believe this has greater implications than that. Yeah. Let me show you. Uh, the, the very first one, and you will be my witnesses, in Jerusalem. I have a map for you. We're, we're going to show. Um, Jerusalem's this little city at the very bottom here. And so what, what Jesus is saying, whenever I want you to take, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem. What he's saying there, he said, hey, I want you to take the gospel to the people that know you the best. Because most of these individuals grew up in Jerusalem. So what that means, I, I want you to take the gospel to the people um, that know all your mistakes. Peter, I want you to take the gospel to the people that, that know you denied me three times. I want you to take the gospel to the people um, that that, that know you didn't really believe this stuff um, even a month ago. That have seen all your mess ups, all your screws. I want you to take the gospel to your family. The hardest people for you to reach. I don't know about you, but but for me, um, family is one of the hardest people to reach with the gospel. Right? I think about, man, how awkward Thanksgiving is going to be. If, if they don't receive it, I mean, will we stop talking? Like, but they're family. We can't stop talking. It's, it's just going to be weird. And that, that's what Jesus talked with. Uh, the people that you think is going to be most awkward, the hardest people, the people that know your past, or it's just going to be difficult. Take it to them. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. It says, in, in Jerusalem, in the next place, in all Judea. And so that's this region down here at the bottom. And and the implications of that is Judea is is where they would have kind of lived, worked, and played. They would have um, been familiar with a lot of people in Judea, um, even outside of the the, the city of Jerusalem. And the implication of that is is Jesus saying, hey, I want you to take the gospel to the people that that you um, pass by on the road, but you don't even know their name. And in our our culture we have today, I don't know about uh, for you, but there's sometimes when I got to run into the store, and it's like, man, I'm just going to stare at the ground and just pray nobody makes eye contact with me. right? So I, I, there won't even be a possibility I might have an awkward conversation. And I remember uh, being at a restaurant one time and, and getting handed a milkshake. And he's like, I hope you enjoy. And I respond, you too. And like, now I'm regretting it for the rest of my life that I was awkward and said, you too, to the guy that handed me the milkshake. Right, so, so we think about like, how difficult it is to, to even have a conversation with people that we interact with on a daily basis or, or just do life with. We're just so scared to even have a conversation with them. And, and Jesus saying, I don't want you to just have a conversation with them. I want you to take the gospel to them. I want the gospel to flood all Judea. And there's implications to that. But, but Jesus doesn't stop there. right? Th- those two are difficult. But now Jesus is going to really step on some toes because he says, I, you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and now Samaria. Samaria is this, this region right here. And uh, if, if you look at scripture uh, and spend some time in that, you, you hear the Samaritans come up a, a few different times. And, and what we know from studying scripture is that the, the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. I mean, they absolutely despised one another. I'll show you how much they despise one another. If if somebody was traveling from Jerusalem to Nazareth, this is where Nazareth is where Jesus grew up, and so if they were traveling, the most logical route would be from Jerusalem and just go right through Samaria right up to Nazareth. You might even stop at Sychar, you know, get something to eat and just be on your way. That would be the most logical route, but the, the Jews so didn't want to interact with the Samaritans, they would cross the Jordan River, go over the rocky mountainous terrain over here on the east side, cross the Jordan River again to now get into Galilee. That's how much it meant we don't even want to be on the same path as them. We're going to go out of our way to make sure we don't interact with the Samaritans. That's why it's so crazy in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets the woman at the well. Because Jesus says, I had to go through Samaria. No Jew had to go through Samaria, but Jesus said, I have to. Because the gospel has to be known there. And we've got to cross cultures with the gospel. We've got to stop uh, looking at other people with different cultures that look different than us, that think different than us. And stop looking at them with contempt and saying, man, they don't deserve it. Right? You may have not never said that, but with your actions, you've shown that. So I want you to think about it for a second. Who is your Samaria? Because we are sinful people. We could be real for a second. We we grow up with with just prejudices towards certain people. Maybe it's the color of their skin. Maybe it's the way that they dress. Maybe it's the the area of town that they live in. But what are your prejudices? And don't just say, man, I don't have any. No, we live in a sinful, broken world. and In our sinful hearts, you have some. And it's better to um, not deny them, but it's better to identify them than put them to death. And say, this is not okay. It's not okay to have these feelings of content towards these people because they need Jesus. Because that's, that's what Jesus is calling the disciples to. Saying, you're going to get made fun of, you're going to get ridiculed, you're going to get persecuted for taking the gospel to the Samaritans. But you have to. But he doesn't even stop there. Our map isn't even sufficient for this last one because he says, uh, don't even stop Samaria. Go to the ends of the earth. And that phrase, ends of the earth, is, was an idiom that, that Jews would use that day uh, for Gentiles. Gentiles is anybody that wasn't a Jew. And so uh, kind of a similar language, I want you to take the gospel to the heathens. I want you to take the gospel to the people that you think are the farthest from God, the people that you think would never surrender to him, the people that that you think uh, would be most ostracized to the gospel. That's who I want you to take it to. I mean, today in our culture, uh, people that come to my mind, is like ISIS or or, um, just radical um, terrorists or different groups of people. They say, uh, even them. Take the gospel to them. Because this is God's strategy to expand the kingdom. And so now what I want us to do is just think practically through this. Ed Stetzer, he says it this way, to, to engage people in culture, we must remember that holiness is separation from sin, not separation from sinners. And the reason I bring this up, because it's easy for us to say, I, I, it's, I can't go to that group of people. I mean, they're in too much sin. I, I just got to protect my whole, no, 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 God's calling you to go to them. God's calling you to take the gospel to him. He even takes it a step further. Ed Sester says, you cannot hate a people and reach a people at the same time. It's impossible. So I want us to think practically. Not just just walk church, but how can we personally expand the kingdom? So I want you to think yourself. Or I'm going to talk through these practical steps and I want you to think about what that looks like in your life. So, our very first practical step to expand the kingdom and just through the kind of filter that we just looked at, looked at through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, our very first practical step is take the gospel to our families. Take the gospel to your family. Look, I'm with you. I know it's hard. I know Thanksgivings could get awkward. I know text messages get, get weird. But one of the most hateful things you can do, listen, one of the most hateful things you can do is to know the gospel and be more afraid of an awkward Thanksgiving than sharing that with family members. If you really believe that they'll spend eternity in hell without it, the most hateful thing you can do is hold that into yourself and not share that with your family. It's worth whatever the cost. That's where we must start. Take it to the ones that, that know you the best, that know your past, that know your circumstances. They need it. Second implication, or second practical step, is be aware of the people around you. Be aware of the people around you. Um, if I've heard an individual um, you know, tell me, man, I'm just, I'm just living life, just hanging out with a lot of Christians. I just really don't even know any lost people. And if you live in Las Vegas, that is comical. <laughs> you can't throw a rock without hitting three lost people. I mean, this city is 92% lost. Yeah. You get that, right? I mean, that's like uh, over two and a half million people that don't know Jesus. Yeah. That we rub shoulders with at the grocery store, that we uh, have weighed on us at the, the restaurant. But yeah, we're too concerned with our own agenda and what's going on in our life to, to even be aware of the people around us. I've had some some conversations with some pastors in the city here recently. And what what keeps coming up, because one of the things uh, I'll say for for, for pastors, they spend a lot of time in church meetings and and a lot of time around Christians. And so I, I was asked these pastors, hey, how do you intentionally spend time with lost people? And what kept coming up with different guys I've spoken to said, hey, I try to regularly go to the same places and actually know the people's names there. Let me give you an example. My friend Nathan, he's a pastor at Liberate Church um, north of the city, just doing some incredible things there. And he was telling me this story. He said, "Um, I was intentional about the barber that I chose. I go to the barber every two weeks, and and I I just began having conversations with this lady. And I just um, just built a relationship to the point where, where she had a difficulty in her life, and I got to speak the gospel into her life. And after a year of going to her as my barber, she now got baptized and saved at our church, and she's on our first impression team. And what's so cool? He said, and then I let her in on, on what I was doing, and now I got a new barber. I'm trying it again, and she's cool with it, right? But, but what if we was intentional in the places we go to every day? What if I know if you tried a new restaurant every day, you would never try all the restaurants in Vegas. But what if, for the sake of the kingdom? You said, hey, I'm going to go to just these three or four. I'm going to go out. I'm going to go to these places. I'm going to try to have the same waiter, the same waiters. I'm going to know their name. I'm going to tip well. I'm going to have conversations with them. I'm going to pray for them. What if you're like me and you go to Albertsons three or four times a week and you say, I'm going to know my cashier's name. I'm going to ask about a day. I'm going to build a relationship with him or her. That's how we impact our Judea by by being aware and knowing the people around us. Our, our third practical step is to cross cultures with the gospel. Now in our sinful nature, it, it's, we are just naturally homogeneous people, which means we just like to be around people like us. We like to be around people that look like us, think like us, talk like us. That's just nature. But what the gospel says is that we have to defy nature and be subjects of the kingdom and cross cultures with the gospel. And so in the diverse city that we live in, I mean, you can literally cross the street and cross into a different culture. I mean, you could cross this room and enter into a different culture. But I think there's even greater implications than that. I mean, one of the incredible things that this church is doing is, is that they're passionate about this crossing cultures with the gospel. So so we have mission teams that are are being sent out, uh, cross-culture. We we have a team right now in Ghana, Africa, crossing cultures with the gospel, expanding the kingdom on the other side of the globe. We have another team that you could even sign up for later this year in Portland, Oregon. They they have a motto of just keep Portland weird. I promise it's a different culture (laughs) that needs to be crossed with the gospel we got another team going to Honduras, uh, which is, again, another radically different culture that that needs to be crossed with the gospel. And and I believe God's calling us to even more than that. Week-long or 10-day or however long mission trips are incredible, and you need to be a part of one. But I really believe in a a room this size, God's calling some of us to, to cross cultures and to move across cultures for the gospel. Instead of just saying, uh, uh, I'm going to do it for for a short time, how can I plant my life somewhere to expand the kingdom, to cross cultures with the gospel? Our our fourth and final point, practical step, is ask kingdom first questions. And here's what I mean. Uh, I want us to ask kingdom first questions, uh, because we often ask, God, where do you want me to go to school? What house do you want me to buy? Uh, Where do you want my kids to go to school? We we ask all, all these type of questions. But what if we started asking, God, where do you want me to move where I can be most effective for expanding your kingdom? God, what job do you want me to take where I can be most effective for expanding your kingdom? And here's how this looked in my life. Uh, When I was about 11 years old, I really felt like the Lord was calling me into ministry. Didn't know what that looked like. And so growing, it was really just a call to prepare and train and grow. And so a few years ago, um, we just got serious, me and my wife, Kirsten, praying about what that would look like. And our question was, "Um, God, what area of ministry can we be most effective for the kingdom? We're willing to do anything, whether that's like, like teaching at a school or whether that, that is being a pastor or a missions pastor or a missionary. Where can we be most effective? And through reading scripture and through uh, other faithful brothers, God just made it clear that, that we could be most effective with our giftings and church planning. And so then we begin praying about, um, God, what city can we be most effective for the kingdom in? Because my wife's a nurse. She's like, I can be a nurse anywhere. Where can I be a nurse to be most effective for the kingdom? And so God gave us a list of things that we're praying through that, that uh, just kind of uh, outlined where, what city would be most effective for us. And then God put in our hearts the greatest city in the world, Las Vegas, Nevada. And so me and my wife last October moved here so that we could just be used for the kingdom of God. I have a friend of mine that, that was going to come here this morning, but his flight was delayed, uh, Miles Adamson. He's a family nurse practitioner, and a couple of months ago, he came out here on a mission trip, and he's said, man, I believe God's called me to something more. I can be a family nurse practitioner anywhere. Where can I do it to be most effective for the kingdom? And he and his wife, Katie, are moving their four kids to Las Vegas, Nevada, this summer to help us plant Image Church in the Mountain's Edge area of Las Vegas. <laughs> Because they began asking kingdom-first questions. So what about you? What kingdom-first questions do you need to be asking? One of the the stories that kind of breaks my heart in this area, right? Because if if the the goal is to expand the kingdom, that's the number one goal of the church. I like to think about how are we doing in that? Well, David Platt, he was the president of the International Mission Board. He's now a pastor at McLean Bible Church, just an incredible man of God. He he was with a team that was going to reach a tribe that had never been reached by anybody. They'd never met an outsider from their tribe. And so David Platt was a part of this team that was going to take the gospel to them. And so they had to take this this long two-day boat ride to the jungles of of Nepal, and they had to climb and, and hike for another day, and they're about one mile away. And they see this person up ahead. They're like, this might be the very first person part of this tribe. And they walk up to him, and the man's face just lights up, and he goes, (laughs) Coca-Cola. I said, what? He just kept saying that over and over again, because that's the only words that he knew uh, in English. And come to find out, this this tribe that we had thought had never been reached by anybody on the outside before, never heard the gospel, had been reached by a representative from Coca-Cola. A company that's only 127 years old has done a better job on promoting their brand than we have the kingdom of God. And I really believe the reason is, is because we we sit in our chairs and think, yes, somebody needs to do something. Instead of thinking, God, what do I need to do? Would you bow your heads with me?